Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The most well-known nuclear plant in the nation is found here in the mid-state. Three Mile Island has been operating just 10 miles outside of Harrisburg since 1978. Since the partial meltdown of the Unit 2 reactor at TMI in 1979, Unit 1 has been generating electricity safely for 30 years. Although the plant is currently licensed to operate until 2034, there has been speculation about the future operation of TMI. With me today to discuss the Three Mile Island uh, future plant, the plant and, the, and its future, is the Executive Vice President of Governmental and Regulatory Affairs and Public Policy for the Exelon Corporation, Joe Dominguez. Mr. Dominguez, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Two years in a row, TMI failed to sell electricity in the future power auction. Uh, provide some context for us. What does that mean? Sure. Uh, well, we, we are part of a broader power grid here in Pennsylvania that spans 13 states, and it reaches from Illinois all the way to New Jersey. And we pool power resources across that region. 56,000 miles of transmission lines deliver power across the region, depending upon the needs of customers in all areas of the region. And each year we conduct a procurement for a product that we call capacity. It simply means the ability to deliver energy at all times of the year to meet our customers' needs on the hottest summer day. We're experiencing some hot, hot days Absolutely. today. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and the coldest days of the year. Uh, so we conduct an auction. The auction doesn't consider the environmental attributes of the plants. So coal plants compete head-to-head uh, -head with nuclear plants to provide that capacity, that promise to deliver energy. And uh, in the case of Three Mile Island, the costs of operating the plant are higher than the market price of that capacity. In other words, we could not get enough revenue in the capacity market make the promise that we will keep TMI open and as a capacity resource for our customers. So this has been going on. I mean, I assume that this is an annual thing. Um, is it nuclear overall or is TMI somehow different? Well, uh, across the nation, we've lost over a dozen plants. We had 100 units operating. Uh, we're down a dozen plants and uh, TMI is uh, suffering from some of the same challenges that we see really across the nuclear industry. Now, when you say, and, uh, okay, go ahead. What were we going to say? Yep. Sure, yeah. And I, I was just going to say, to summarize those, um, what, we've, what we've really had is uh, policies where we uh, favor certain resources in the market with uh, what we would call attribute payments or payments to produce electricity without a carbon profile. Uh, nuclear so far has been excluded. New York has has changed all that in the last uh, couple of weeks. But New York historically has been excluded from programs that recognize and pay plants for producing electricity without a carbon profile. So obviously wind, solar, hydroelectricity, geothermal, biomass, and a host of other technologies, 16 in total, are recognized here in Pennsylvania for low emission attributes nuclear has been excluded from that and so as a consequence they don't get money that these other resources get and the plants are challenged not just here but really across the country those other energy sources that uh, you mentioned we have to add another one in there that is very big here in pennsylvania but it is part of the competition and that is natural gas true 
Sure. Uh, now, uh, natural ga gas is an incredibly important source of electricity for the power markets going forward, and we operate a number of natural gas plants. Of course, we, we could not say that those plants are zero carbon. Uh, they have emissions profiles that are about half of the emissions released by coal plants. So I, I want to get back to uh, the the auction itself before we get into uh, some of uh, the, the legislative uh, relief that uh, that you're seeking and the, the nuclear industry, industry as a whole. But um, this auction, we're talking about uh, electricity that uh, TMI would produce in the year years uh, 2019, 2020. Um, if the plant is operating, then. Where would the electricity that it is uh, producing go if not to PGM? Well, the the um, the plant could continue to sell into PGM. It's voluntary at this point. If we decide to keep the plant open, we could always sell into the marketplace. What uh, not clearing in the auction simply means is that we don't have an obligation to keep the plant open, and therefore if we continue to lose money at the plant, we have the option to shut it down. Had we cleared in the auction, we would have been committed to keeping the plant in operation uh, through that uh, what we call delivery year, which begins on June 1st, 2019 and ends on May 31st, 2020. That's even though the plant is licensed until the year 2034. That's right. Um, so the plant is licensed. We've invested uh, over half a billion dollars in the plant over the last number of years uh, to make state-of-the-art improvements to the plant. So it's, it's licensed to operate through 2034. It's certainly capable. You noted in your at the outset of this segment that uh, TMI is one of the most reliable plants in the entire nuclear fleet. Um, it is, uh, you know, it has set a number of world records in terms of its operational performance. How much money are we talking about? Uh, just what has happened in the past two years with uh, TMI, uh, the no bids coming in on TMI for future? Well, it, it um, costs uh, us as a company about 60 to $100 million uh, in losses that we're suffering operating the plant because the plant has not cleared. Mm -hmm. And what is, what is that uh, 60 to $100 million? What is that going for to operate the plant? Well, it goes for uh, all of the employees at the site. We have a payroll uh, that's just salary payroll of over $60 million. Uh, we pay property taxes, state taxes, uh, and then we invest uh, tremendously in these assets. You know, the, the, the thing that I think uh, folks uh, don't fully appreciate about the nuclear plants that are, not, are in operation across the United States is that we constantly upgrade these machines. They are far different than the machines that were built, uh, and we've basically retrofitted the entire um, plant uh, by making significant capital uh, investments in the plant. So that goes on and on, and it's uh, very expensive. For Exelon, we invest over a billion dollars a year in our fleet. Since 1979, how many nuclear plants have come online in this country? You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, we, we had, uh, I, I am going to guess that approximately 20 percent to 30 percent of the nation's fleet came on after TMI um, or, or after the incident at, at TMI. We did not own the plant at that time, right. incidentally. But, right. 
but but uh, after that incident, uh, as you know, there was a cooling off period in terms of the desire to build new nuclear plants. A number of plants were in the pipeline and then did come into operation through about the mid-1980s. Uh, now, those were already, those were existing plants, correct, or those that were under construction? That's right, I, uh, the plants that were under construction. I guess that uh, my, my question, I should have added the word new. I know that uh, in 2011, there was a plant in Georgia that was licensed. I don't know where that stands as far as construction. Uh, have there been any new plants that have come online? They're, they're, uh, the, the plants haven't come online, but you're exactly right that four plants are under construction in the United States right now with the expectation that they'll come online at different dates through the balance of this decade. Mm -hmm. Does that say, you know, someone would look at that, and here in central Pennsylvania, you know, over 37 uh, years, uh, you know, we have different opinions on uh, nuclear and uh, Three Mile Island. It's a lot different now than it was in 1979 as far as even the opinions of the residents near, uh, near TMI. But in your opinion... Has the government, and by that I'm talking about uh, the federal government, turned its back on nuclear power? I don't know that it's I, – I wouldn't say it that, that starkly. I, I would say that the, the federal government has certainly uh, spent more time focusing on renewable generation, jump-starting those industries. And incidentally, we're the seventh largest solar company in the country and the 11th largest wind-generating company and one of the top three hydroelectric companies. So we, we've built a business platform on producing zero carbon electricity or zero emission electricity, and we use all different sources. We're not just a nuclear company. And we have participated in government programs that support the solar and wind industry. Those are important technologies as we transition to a zero carbon future. I think the issue with nuclear is that um, there was an expectation that the machines um, did not need additional economic support. Um, they were widely recognized as producing the most zero-carbon electricity in the nation. In fact, when we talk about zero-emission resources, over 60% of those resources are nuclear. And nuclear is unique in the sense that among the different technologies we operate, it's the only one we could count on to operate 24-7 any day of the year because Obviously, we don't need water and we don't need wind uh, to be blowing or the sun to be out. So it's very important. And But I think what the federal government has missed is the challenges that have been creeping up on the industry in terms of the cost competitiveness, frankly, with uh, very inexpensive natural gas units. And so the reality is today that if nuclear is not recognized, for producing zero carbon electricity, like the 16 other technologies that are recognized here in Pennsylvania, uh, we're we're going to see continuing plant retirements. And your company uh, retired, using your word, uh, two plants in Illinois. Uh, what happened in those cases? Well, the the uh, plants are going to be shut down in 17 and uh, 18, respectively. Uh, there, the Clinton plant will shut down in 17, and the Quad Cities plant will shut down in 18. As you noted, we do have legislation pending in Illinois uh, that we believe will change the outcome of that decision. In other words, turn that around and allow us to save the plants. Um, the Over the last couple of weeks, very significant developments out of New York State. 
which uh, is leading the nation in terms of developing programs that support nuclear energy. Governor Cuomo there has recognized that the loss of even one unit uh, will completely eliminate the state's progress on wind and solar over the last 20 years. So he has been focused on keeping the nuclear plants in upstate New York operating and uh, the Public Service Commission, the Utility Commission up there, has developed some, some new state-of-the-art policy programs that will keep the plants operating. We hope that that will be a template for the rest of the nation. Those two Illinois plants, though, uh, how do they compare with Three Mile Island? Uh, the, the two sites are a little bit different. Um, the one site compares uh, with uh, Three Mile Island. That's the Clinton site in southern Illinois in the sense that it's a site where we only have one reactor on the site. The other site is a site called Quad Cities, and that is different than Three Mile Island in the sense that we're operating two nuclear units on the same site. And when we're able to do that, you get some additional economies of scale. I want to talk more about legislation and some other uh, other factors uh, involved in uh, the, the decision on the future of uh, Three Mile Island as well in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is uh, during this program portion of the program is Joe Dominguez who is the Executive Vice President of Governmental and Regulatory Affairs and Public Policy for the Exelon Corporation. We're talking about the future of the Three Mile Island nuclear plant. Uh, for the second year in a row, it failed to uh, get bids in an auction for future energy, and uh, that could have uh, a substantial impact on the plant's economics in the future possibility that the plant could be closed. Uh, uh, Mr. Dominguez, let's get back to... Um, you know, what's happening in some other states around the country and uh, either happening or not happening uh, here in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, you said from what you've said, it sounds as if you would like uh, nuclear to be considered part of those carbonless, uh, those 16 carbonless uh, energy sources out there. But even though, um, you know, nuclear may not provide uh, or I should say uh, emit carbon emissions, there is a danger, as, as, as uh, TMI showed in 1979, Fukushima just a few years ago. And at the same time, uh, you know, it sounds from what you're describing is that there is an economic factor in all this, too. So which one is it or is it both that states are, and maybe even the federal government, a little bit uh, hesitant to embrace nuclear? I think... Um let me let me talk about Fukushima first because it's it's uh, the one that's probably most present on people's minds. We've done a full examination of the U.S. fleet, and obviously the Fukushima incident was a result of a significant tidal wave, as well as a massive earthquake uh, that destabilized the region. Um, in the case of Three Mile Island and many of the nation's plants that are uh, well inland, uh, tidal waves are not uh, not a risk. Um, and we have done seismic studies for all of the other plants. So I, I, I think it's safe to say that from an NRC perspective, we have implemented some changes as a result of Fukushima, but it was a relatively unique incident. Uh, on, on, the, uh, on the safety side, I think the record speaks for itself. Um, Nuclear energy has been the safest energy source that the world has ever known. 
when one compares the number of deaths associated with emissions into the atmosphere, um, you know, coal generation and, and uh, fossil generation has been historically uh, challenging from a safety perspective. And even things like solar and wind uh, have had a, a number of additional fatalities. You know, more folks um, have fallen off rooftops installing solar panels than were ever hurt in the Fukushima incident, uh, as an example. So every energy source has some safety issues. We don't ignore ours. We take them very seriously. We have this safety covenant with the communities we've served, and we think we do that very well. In terms of the, the reasons that nuclear has not been recognized, I think it really relates more to practical circumstances that the plants haven't needed to be recognized. And so policymakers are, are pretty much approach these things from a if it's not broke, don't fix it standpoint. And until a few years ago, plants were not retiring. And so there was nothing broke. Well, things are broken now. And the reality is we need to step in and, and change that, or we are going to lose the largest source of emissions-free electricity in the United States. But I want to get back to the economic part of it. Uh, you know, I read a quote from someone that said that nuclear is just not economically feasible compared to other energies today, other sources of energy. My guess is you would disagree with that. Well, of course I would. I, and, and I think the facts bear that out. But I, I, whoever said that, I think, is speaking some truth in the following sense. We don't believe that a new nuclear unit uh, would make sense economically for us. And we've been very clear about that. We don't intend to build a new nuclear unit in any of the states that we operate. We are going to focus on building wind, solar, and other resources, storage eventually. Uh, but the question about whether new nuclear is economic is different from the question of whether it makes sense economically to preserve the machines that are already built, the steel in the ground, and getting the best bang for the buck out of those machines we possibly can. On that score, nuclear is far and away the cheapest zero carbon resource. It is at least one half the price of wind energy and also has the uh, benefit uh, of being able to operate 24-7, as I talked about before. In the case of solar energy, nuclear is five to ten times less expensive than distributed solar energy forms. So. Um, it has an enormous cost advantage. But again, I am talking about making the most of the machines that consumers already have helped us build and making sure that they could continue to power this nation as we move forward and transition to other zero carbon resources. And we expect those zero carbon resources to become less expensive. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that there was legislation and is legislation in Illinois and New York has made some moves. Uh, nothing, as far as I know, has been introduced here in Pennsylvania, has been at least officially proposed. What would you look like to see here in Pennsylvania legislatively? Well, I think in the first instance, we have to begin the discussion. And we've uh, started to do that. We have started to talk to policymakers. Certainly policymakers here in Pennsylvania look out across the United States and understand what is happening in terms of policy development to support nuclear in New York, Illinois, and other places. And so we've begun that discussion. And what we have to do is, is try to understand whether or not uh, it makes sense for our customers to keep these machines operating, as I said, to, uh, to power another generation of, of Pennsylvanians. 
And uh, we think the economic case is pretty clear. We simply can't replace these zero carbon resources in an economic way. Uh, the industry across Pennsylvania contributes $2.36 billion in, in gross domestic product. We account across Pennsylvania for 15,600 in-state full-time jobs, and we generate 37% of Pennsylvania's overall electricity and 93% of Pennsylvania's zero-carbon electricity. So I think there's a, certainly a recognition of how important the nuclear industry is here in Pennsylvania. It's one of the leading states, and uh, we are in the beginning stages of discussions, uh, but as you've noted, we have not introduced or no one has introduced legislation as yet. Uh, we think in the fullness of time that legislation is going to be required. Uh, now, you were talking about uh, the nuclear industry as a whole here in uh, Pennsylvania. What about Three Mile Island itself? I know there are 700 people who are employed at, at uh, TMI. What kind of impact would it have here on Central Pennsylvania, or does it have here on Central Pennsylvania? Well, let me give you a couple of facts. So when I, the $2.36 billion is spread off, spread across seven reactors, and it's pretty much uh, a linear function. So if you were to think about TMI in isolation, you're talking about something that contributes about $300 million annually uh, to, the, uh, to the economy of Pennsylvania. As you noted, we have about 725 employees. We pay $60 million uh, in annual payroll, not including benefits, including benefits. That number swells to over $100 million. Uh, we pay uh, $30 million across the industry in payroll taxes, and we support a number of different communities across the state. So I would say TMI, uh, the, the short story there is $300 million in economic activity annually, over 700 high-paying jobs, the skilled men and women that, that work at the plant and tax payments and so on and so forth. So let's talk about uh, what's being assessed, and I don't know whether right now is the way to, to say it, uh, but will be assessed in the future for uh, TMI. Uh, what will the thought, thought process be? How will you determine the future of the plant? So we go through a process annually where we look at every one of our assets. And... Um, if you think about it, you know, if you could imagine us owning um, dozens of convenience stores, we look at each, each store, in the case of our business, each plant on a plant-by-plant -plant basis, and we look at the economics. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we know that Three Mile Island is losing money. Um, but we don't just look, we don't make a decision like this based on one year's uh, economics. We look at the rest of its life and try to understand whether or not uh, there is going to be economic value in keeping the asset o open over the lifetime of the uh, of operations. We could operate this plant through 2034 and um, we have seen a great deal of development on the carbon mitigation front, different policies that the U.S. and the state has implemented and we try to factor those things in as well as try to factor in uh, the competing price of uh, other alternatives like natural gas, which, as you know, uh, ha have had a very volatile price history. And one of the benefits of keeping the nuclear plants open is keeping a portfolio and all of the above uh, uh, number of resources that uh, don't just depend on one commodity so that if natural gas prices ultimately take off, 
there's a portion of the state's electricity that isn't going to become uh, far more expensive during those times. So we, we try to think about all of those things. We're obviously focused on our, uh, on our customers. Pico Energy in Pennsylvania, our sister utility, trying to understand how the loss of the plant will affect them. And, um, you know, in, in all of these analyses, the tie is going to go to the runner. We're going to try to figure out ways to keep the plants operating. But uh, candidly, we're coming up uh, against a point in time here with TMI where some, t- some very difficult and tough decisions need to be taken. Is there a deadline for those kind of decisions to be made? There's no explicit deadline, but um, as you noted, we have these annual auctions. And for us, um, one of the key decision points is going to be whether or not we decide to keep the plant uh, uh, in operation and bidding in the next auction. And so if we decide to take the plant out of operation, we have to give the grid operators 18 months of notice. And uh, we also have to let them know that we're not going to participate in future energy auctions. And the critical dates for that decision, if we're going to take it before the next uh, delivery year, is in September. September of this year. Yeah, that's right, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I, I keep thinking, you know, you're licensed through 2034, and that seems like such a long time. It is 18 years uh, from now. It is uh, yeah. some time. And I, I don't know, thinking about being around for the whole history of, of this plant and how hard uh, the former owners, and I, I don't know how whether you were involved in the licensing process or relicensing process, how hard everyone fought to get uh, Unit 1 uh, relicensed and up and operating. Um, I know it's difficult to look ahead, but say things would turn around and the plant would be making money. Could you anticipate seeking another license? <laughs> I we know could, I, I and, and it, yeah, no, no, no. That's a great question, and in fact, it's it's a very uh, it's a it's a very relevant question. We're actually doing at, that at the Peach Bottom plant in Pennsylvania, a little bit lower on the Susquehanna. And so that's that's a reality. There is uh, we're exploring whether we could go an additional 20 years operating the plant. As I said earlier in the program, you know we've we've basically retrofitted the entire plant. The plants are are kind of brand new on the inside. So there is an opportunity to uh, to look at extending the life, and uh, that that could be true for TMI. Uh, unfortunately, at this point. Um, we're struggling to figure out a way to keep it going through its initial license period as opposed to even thinking about uh, going beyond that. But in theory, of course, it's possible. You know, the technology, you know, I wonder how much the technology in nuclear power has changed over the years. I mean, have we seen a big change due to technology over the last uh, 30 or 40 years in the operation of nuclear plants, or is it pretty much still the same as we had uh, in the 1970s? The, the technology inside uh, the uh, the nuclear plants has changed radically. Um, so if you could imagine, uh, back in the old days, we had analog, the old analog controls operating everything. We didn't have sophisticated computers that we have today. Uh, and all of those innovations we've incorporated into the operation of nuclear plants. And they've allowed us to become far more efficient and they've improved the safety margins of operating the plants uh, remarkably. And so we, you know, as, as technology has evolved, we are implementing 
those technology changes into the into the nuclear plants, and the result is has been uh, fairly dramatic. We have gotten uh, more output, greater degree of efficiency out of these plants, while maintaining and improving safety margins really across the uh, the entire U.S. fleet. It's one of the unheralded stories in American energy policy. But, you know, with any energy, and you mentioned, uh, just gave an example of people falling off the roof and stolen solar panels. I mean, we do hear about uh, uh, the impact on the environment of uh, wind, of wind, and, uh, you know, some of the other energies. But with any energy, uh, there's nothing that is 100 percent, you know, that there's no carbon, no other impact on the environment or other things. You know, one of the issues that uh, we've heard a lot about over the years, especially here in central Pennsylvania, because of the accident at TMI, uh, and that is nuclear waste. Have we found a way to store that, to get rid of it? Well, we thought we did. Uh, we had a solution uh, that uh, was being implemented, and uh, Yucca Mountain was going to be the national uh, disposal site for uh, spent nuclear fuel. And uh, largely for political reasons, that has uh, stalled in the last uh, eight years. Uh, Senator Reed from Nevada has been uh, a strong opponent of putting that site in Nevada, even though uh, billions of dollars have been spent uh, creating the site. So right now we, uh, we are dealing with interim storage methods. It's very safe. Certainly invite you or, or, or anyone else to come out to our plants to take a look at it. We put uh, the fuel in uh, stainless steel canisters that are encased in cement. They're stored right there at the site. Uh, they're about 13 feet high, and they're designed to store the fuel for 100 years or more. And we hope during that period of time, um, even Washington gridlock will end and we will be able to get to a permanent disposal site. Our guest has been uh, Joe Dominguez, who is the Executive Vice President of Governmental and Regulatory Affairs and Public Policy for Exelon Corporation, giving us an update on the future of the Three Mile Island plant. Obviously, this is a big deal here in central Pennsylvania, and we'll continue to follow it. But, Mr. Dominguez, thank you very much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. This Sunday marks the 20th anniversary of the third deadliest aviation accident in U.S. history, one which had a profound impact on a community here in Pennsylvania. On the night of July 17, 1996, Transworld Airlines Flight 800 crashed into the United, or excuse me, into the Atlantic Ocean, taking the lives of the 230 people on board. 21 of those passengers were students and chaperones from Montoursville in Lycoming County. They were flying to France as part of a student exchange program. With me to talk about the impact this tragedy has had on Montoursville over the past 20 years are Chris Miller, who's a police chief with, was the police chief of Montoursville in 1996 and currently the police chief of the Penn State College of Technology, and John Doran, who is the mayor of Montoursville now and was the mayor in 1996 as well. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Good morning. Yes. Good morning. Right. So let's talk about the impact on Montoursville. This was, uh, I mean, for those who have ever visited your community, have been to Montoursville many times, and uh, it's a tight-knit little community, and uh, 
Um, you know, just when, when I first heard about this, thought about the impact it would have on any community, but knowing how tight-knit and uh, everything that your town was, I knew that it would have a huge impact. Mayor, let me start with you. Uh, talk about the impact that this tragedy had and has had on Montoursville. Well, it, uh, it had a tremendous impact. And uh, as you know, and as you just said, uh, Montoursville uh, has a resilient uh, group of people. Uh, they're thoughtful, they're loving, and they're caring. And that, that's what brought us through this past 20 years. Uh, we were there for the families. We were the buffers uh, when, you know, when it was needed. Uh, and so here we are in our 20th uh, anniversary. And if you, if you think about it, uh, and one of the parents mentioned to me that you, they said, do you realize that our children are been dead longer than they've been alive? And that is true. You know, we've, uh, you know, we've, we've, here we are at, at, at the 20th anniversary. What, what could they have achieved in, in the, uh, if they were alive? Would they have been a doctor, a lawyer? Been a family person, and and that's what we're that's what we're missing, and that's what the world is missing. These sixteen students, what could they have achieved, and what could they have accomplished uh, for us and our nation? Mm. Chief Miller, what about you? What are your thoughts on the impact? Um, you know, thinking back, like the mayor said, twenty years ago, it just seems like wow, it hasn't been twenty years ago. But I have to agree with him that. Uh, you know, Montoursville has always been a close-knit community. I mean, I grew up there. I, I raised my kids there. Um, and, and I think the overall impact to the community still sits there today. Um, but for me, you know, every time I see a parent that has to lose a child, and it doesn't matter whether the child is five years old or they're 40 years old, um, the grief for that family is there. What, what I see differently for these families is, is as a nation – we will look at this, um, you know, when you turn on television, you may see a special about the Flight 800 and what really caused it to come down. And, you know, so you, you have that constant reminder out there for you where when you lose a son or daughter and like a car crash or, um, God forbid, a suicide, um, it, it's a different impact on that family, but it's not a community impact as much. You, you get the sense that this is something that a community Obviously, the families can't, but even a community can never recover from. Would you agree with that, Chief? Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it, it impacted, um, you know, families in certain ways. Um, you know, there may be some things that happened in families that wouldn't have happened. Like the mayor said, you know, what, what would have become of, of these kids um, or even the five chaperones, you know, uh, you know, them being grandparents. You know, how would they raise their grandkids and what difference could have they made? So, you know, when you think about that, um, it, it is it's it, it's tragic. Uh, really, they they could have made a huge difference had they all stayed in the community of Matoursville. What would Matoursville look like today if they were there? Mm. Uh, Mayor Doran, uh, it's in this country, we have a thing for you know, the even number years, uh, like the, the the 20th anniversary, we look back on something like this. Uh, but I imagine that in, in Montoursville, yes, there, there are commemorations this weekend in town of uh, the, the, the Flight 800 explosion. But I imagine that uh, you don't need a 20th anniversary to, to think about this. That's true. You know, it's for for myself since uh, I was been mayor for 34 years and uh, four years on council. Prior to that, I I 
and committed to this community. And, uh, you know, it's a great community. And, and so, you know, in the past 20 years, you, you seem to, you, you think about, you think about the families, uh, you could say on a daily basis, you, because you'll see families on the street. They're there. They're, you know, they're our, they're part of our, our community. And, uh, you know, so we've, uh, over the years, we've, what we've done, we've, we start to prepare ourselves, uh, to constantly remind the youngsters that are coming up through our school system and in, in our community, what had happened 20 years ago. Uh, and as a result, we've, uh, we've put together a room at the Historical Society dedicated to Flight 800. Um, what, we're, what we're doing this weekend, uh, there's a group that, uh, that does a random acts of kindness. That's a 21 random acts of kindness. And on, on the, uh, the, uh, the anniversary date, this group goes out and they do 21 acts of kindness. Uh, and also what we're having is a, a memorial race, and that's been going on for a number of years. Uh, and that race is going to be Saturday, Saturday on the 16th. And, uh, and what it does is it has activities for the children. It has activities for the, for the adults, uh, the 5K run and so forth. So that's a constant reminder. And also on uh, – on the 16th, which is Saturday, we're going to have a memorial a garden service. And so th- that is going to be a, you know, a reminder. Again, this is our 20th anniversary. But, you know, these are just, this is a milestone. But the, the uh, Flight 800 is constantly on our mind. And the chief remembers, uh, you know, the, what had happened uh, 20 years ago, what he had to do as chief, what I had to do as mayor. And, you know, that's a constant reminder that we're there for our community and for, for the people that have lost loved ones. Well, let's talk about that. And, Chief Miller, I'll start with you. Uh, take me back to July 17th, 90, 1996. How did you find out about the crash? And, uh, and, and Mayor, I'll ask you the same question. And uh, what were your roles right afterwards? Um, for me, I don't remember who called me first. Um, I remember being at home. I remember getting a call, and it was either from one of the parents that I was close with first or one of my officers. I don't remember, um, but they, they just said, Chief, um, the, the plane that was taking our French club and chaperones to France, um, they believe it's crashed off of Long Island. And I'm like, wow, you know, keep, let me know what's going on. And I got a call back shortly later you know and then i turned on the television and then i knew that it was the flight that the kids were on what really hit me was is the next day um obviously the high school was going to become the centralized place for everyone to go because that's where everybody departed from and when i showed up to the high school early that morning actually before i got there i got a call from my third shift officer that said chief we have nine satellite trucks sitting around the high school right now setting up with news media And that was pretty much my first impact that I got there um, was how this was going to become not only an event for our community, but the national attention that we are going to receive. But you took on a bigger role than what most police chiefs would, just from what I've read, um, considering that it did not happen in your jurisdiction, that it happened 100 miles away. Well, yeah, um, you know, we, we were a small police department. We had six officers at the time. 
Um, and, you know, there was a lot of requests coming in. Obviously, the medical examiner's office uh, over in Long Island and eventually would need our assistance. When they were looking at terrorism, I remember the, uh, the local officer that was in charge of the FBI office, Mike Kudak, he came to see me and he said, hey, we need your help. We need to start interviewing people. Um, you know, and we had to go out into the family's homes in some cases to try and collect physical evidence to send over to help identify their loved ones. Um, you know, so that, that, became a, that became a unique task for us, um, as well as managing the, the national media and, and what was going on at the high school. Then uh, immediately following that, we had, uh, within a couple of days of the crash, we had a memorial service in the gymnasium, which we filled about 3,000 people. Um, you know, uh, Governor Ridge came at that time. And, you know, one of my things that sticks out in my head from that and dealing with that was is that wasn't a burden having, you know, worry about security for the governor. I remember the governor's um, liaison trying to say, come on, governor, we have another event we have to get to. We have another event to get to. And the governor sat down in the hallway outside the gymnasium with six of our students at the high school who were crying, obviously. And he sat down to console them and talk to them. And his liaison said, come on, Governor, we got to get going. And Governor Ridge looked at him and said, this is more important. And he stayed on that floor for 20 minutes with those kids. And, and that vision still sits in my head today. Then we went to the other memorial service, um, you know, where Mayor Giuliani came in from New York City. And there was questions on whether President Clinton was going to come in at the time. So I had to reach out to the local law enforcement around us, which fortunately we all worked together so well because of Little League Baseball being here. We're used to all getting together for large events, so it was easy to make a couple of phone calls, and, and I had, you know, 40 officers at my fingertips in 30 minutes, so, um, so that's, that's, that's what I remember from the first couple of days of it. Mayor, how did you find out, and what was your role in the days afterwards? I was, uh, I was heading back home from my office at the administration building, and it was somewhere around 9 o'clock that evening. Uh, when I heard it on the radio, and it, it, was, it was rather sketchy as far as the information uh, coming in. Uh, they were talking about this flight, 800, uh, the tragedy, you know, the, the plane falling into the ocean. Was it, you know, what, what had happened? And, and so uh, the first thing I did was I, I headed over to the high school that evening, and uh, and, and what we did there, I started inquiring, and, of course, uh, people were starting to gather. So right away I knew that we had a problem, that our students were on that aircraft. And before that point, it was questionable whether they were on that flight or not. Uh, so, you know, as, uh, you know, shock and, and, and disbelief showed, you know, heavily on, on the faces of, of everyone that was uh, at the school, the, the administrators, um, you know the uh, the staff, uh, the, the the secretary, everybody. We were trying to get together to formulate a plan, which there was no plan. You don't have a plan for a tragedy, and and uh, you know. So what do you do? So you know, we start uh, we start working uh, with a with, with a predetermined script. Uh, phone calls were placed to counselors. The clergy uh, during the morning hours, uh, you know, that following morning as, as time went on, uh, the school didn't close. I mean, it was midnight. It, the school stayed open. Uh, and, and, and what had happened, 
was uh, the, the parents were in there and they're demanding answers, just like everyone else. What had happened? Was, was our really was it our flight? Uh, you know that our children uh, was on, and uh, so what had happened was they tried to make contact with TWA, and they finally did through our state police. I, you know, the chief probably remembers that that the, the state police interceded there at that that point in time and made contact with TWA. So therefore, at that point in time, uh, we had to uh, commandeer uh, several buses to get these families uh, into uh, uh, JFK. And in the meantime, we're trying to administer to uh, the families that, that were left behind, uh, the students, our residents coming in, asking questions. It, it, was, just, it was just unbelievable. Mm. What was everyone told about the cause of, uh, of the explosion of the crash? Well, at that point in time, uh, you know, terrorism was, was the key thing. Uh, even the next day, uh, when I was, had, was fortunate to talk to President Clinton, he called me on the phone, and he, uh, he, we spoke for probably several minutes. And he mentioned to me, he said, it sounds like they're, you know, it's terrorism, but we don't know for sure. He said, well, we're going to get to the bottom of this, Mayor. I'll, I'll assure you that. And he said, I'm putting uh, 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 Mr. Panetta on this immediately, and he'll be our liaison. And I said, thank you, Mr. President. It's great to, it's great to hear that, uh, you know, you'll be assisting us and taking your time to do that. Uh, so it was great that, you know, that here the President of the United States immediately got involved. And, uh, you know, and I was very happy uh, that he was supportive of this. Uh, Chief Miller, uh, from the very beginning, terrorism was considered one of uh, the, the, the main potential reasons for the explosion. You mentioned Mike Hudak. Uh, FBI became involved from the very beginning. That normally isn't something that happens. I, I read a book about, uh, about Flight 800 from the FBI and their investigation, but eventually they determined that it was not uh, a terrorist attack, that uh, it was vapor explosion in the fuel tank causing the explosion. Um, tell me about the first few days, your contact with the FBI, what everyone he was hearing about the cause of the explosion. Well, I think from their perspective, you know, as a, as a new country, terrorism, or I shouldn't say a new country, but terrorism was new to our country back at that time. Right. This you is know, before 9-11 and everything it else. Was before 9-11, but, you know, we had seen some other terrorism acts. Um, you know, Oklahoma had already occurred. And so, you know, it, it was always on the forefront of their mind. And I think they went about it methodically just like they do anything else. Hey, we have to rule everything out. Um, you know, it's just like no different than if you find a body uh, in a home. Is it a natural death or is it a homicide? So you start with worst case scenario with a homicide and work your way back. And they do the same thing. So they work at it, look at it from terrorism and work all those angles and work your way back till you actually find a cause. And so I think their approach and, and how they worked with people that they interviewed from where I was present at, um, you know, they had, they had very soft, tender gloves on. You know, it wasn't a, a harsh interview that you would think it would be, you know, because they had empathy for the families and anybody that could provide them information at the same time knowing that they had to get answers to something, you know. And those were simple questions like, you know, did, did your child talk to you about having anyone approach them when they were at the airport asking them to take a package or a bag on the plane for them? You know, a question like that. 
um, you know, but they had to ask it. And, and, and so that's some of the things that I remember going through with them. Mayor, from what I understand, you have your doubts about uh, the, the conclusion of uh, the, the fuel vapors causing the explosion. Uh, I did. I did initially because of the information that was supplied to me. Uh, but with my engineering background, after you know, after the investigation, they they put the pieces of the plane together. Uh, they try to determine at that point what had happened, and they came to a conclusion that you know it was an electrical thing. I, I sort of support that. But there are still people, and in fact, I understand that there was a parent of uh, one of uh, the, the students who was on board the plane that uh, feel that uh, that explanation is, doesn't ring true and that did not cause the explosion. Uh, that's true. There is. There is a lot of doubt. There's books on it. I think, you know, there's some paperback books about uh, the uh, people flying, the officers flying the helicopters and the single-wing aircraft that were in the air at the time saying that they saw on their radar what they look what looked like is a missile you know so there are there are doubters mm. uh, so you know it, it sounds as if you know the, the the case is officially closed and you know something that chief miller mentioned about how painstakingly the plane was put back together if you've ever seen photographs of this i mean that is just amazing what they have done considering that each little piece of that plane was on the bottom of the ocean or floating in the ocean and they put almost the entire plane back together again it is amazing of what they what what they could do but getting back to the people the town this weekend what will the legacy of uh, Flight 800 be in Montoursville and beyond, Mayor? Well, you know, the legacy, I, I can't, you know, what can I say on behalf of the parents? I mean, you know, the the grief is still there. Um, you, you don't, you can't measure, you can't measure, you can't measure grief. And, uh, but the town, the, the town is, is progressing. Uh, they're doing a lot of things, just like I mentioned. What you know, what we what we're doing to continue this this history of what had happened 20 years ago, and so you know, I think we have to live with what the uh, what what had what they come up with in the investigation. In fact, I sent a letter to President Obama, asking him asking him uh, that uh, we I would be requesting a. Uh, final report on flight 800 and i haven't heard from 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 the white house yet but that was only about a, a week and a half ago mm. so i'm going to wait and see what if president obama can release the final official report and we will use that as a document in our historical society Mm. Uh, gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. John Doran is the longtime mayor of Montoursville, and Chris Miller uh, was the police chief of Montoursville in 1996. He's currently the police chief of the Penn State College of Technology. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. I want to tell you that coming up on um, Monday's show, a live report from the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, and a law professor talks about how judges are selected in Pennsylvania. That is coming up on Monday's morning.